Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan and the book of Haggai. And here he's going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, take a look at our Theopolis app. You can download that app from your app store, create an account, and you'll have access to all kinds of free content. And on the other side of the small paywall, you can find hundreds and hundreds of lectures, dozens of ebooks, and much more. So to take a look at that app, there's a link down there in the show notes, or you can head over to your app store and download it from there. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and helped by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan, teaching in the book of Haggai. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you who have called us into your kingdom, we ask that in this hour your spirit would bless us as we study your word. Help us to understand these somewhat complicated matters. We might be more firmly grounded in the teachings of your word and might live a more fully Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll open your Bibles again this morning to the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, and starting in verse 10. We come here to the third, or by some reckonings, fourth, depending on what you do with chapter 1, prophecy in the book of Haggai on the 24th day of the ninth month. It's an interesting date. I'll say more about the date next week. The ninth month corresponds to December. And on the 25th day of the ninth month is the Feast of Hanukkah, which celebrates the reestablishment of the temple. Well, the whole of the book of Haggai has to do with the reestablishment of the temple. And, of course, that comes over into Christianity as Christmas, which celebrates the birth of the true temple of God. So there are interesting connections with this date, the 24th of the ninth month, which we can look at in a little bit more detail next week. On the 24th day of the ninth month, we're in verse 10, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day backward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten, and when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, and there would be only twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, milled you in hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. But now do consider from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. And yet from this day on, I will bless you. Here's the reading of God's word. 
Now this prophecy comes about two months after the previous one where he had promised them that he would build the house of the Lord, the house of prayer, church. And two months later after the harvest is in, we find in verse 18 that they founded the temple. Now that's not actually the best translation here in verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, it would be better to translate, began to be rebuilt. From the day the temple began to be rebuilt. Now they didn't need to lay a new foundation. The old temple had been burned, but the foundation was still good. And so there's no question of a new foundation. They had been told to go and gather all the material to rebuild the temple, you'll remember from our other studies. And by this time, all the material had been gathered together, and now they were ready actually to start the work of rebuilding. And it was on the 24th of the ninth month. And the Lord tells them to consider backwards from that day and how the Lord had not blessed them, but now to consider forward from that day. And even though it was the winter time and there was no way to see a visible sign of blessing, yet from this day onward they had his word, his assurance, that he would bless them. So the 24th of the ninth month is really midwinter, or just before midwinter, and it's the time when they finally had wrapped everything else up and were starting to rebuild the temple. And the word of the Lord came to Haggai, according to verse 10 again, and says in verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. The previous prophecies were addressed to the church and the state and the people. Here, this one is addressed to the priests, to those who rendered judgments. Now, in particular, it was the duty of the priests in the Old Testament to separate between what was clean and unclean and to render judgments in that area. You may remember if a man had leprosy or appeared to have leprosy, he went to the priest and the priest would decide whether he actually had leprosy or not. If he did have leprosy, the priest would declare him unclean and he would have to go outside the camp or live outside the gates. And then if the leprosy covered his entire body so that he was white from top to toe, uh, he would go to the priest again and the priest would pronounce him clean. And so the priest would pronounce clean or unclean in many different areas. And so now the priests are asked for a ruling in terms of certain ritual laws. Now, this is where it gets complicated to us because we don't live and move and have our being in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. If we did, this wouldn't be quite so hard to understand. So there's a lot of background we need to get, just as we've had to do with the last prophecy. We'll have to get a lot of background to understand verses 12 and 13. But let's get a picture in our minds of what's being said here in verse 12. If a man carries holy meat, what's holy meat? Well, the holy meat is the meat of the sacrifice, all right? You take a lamb or a bullock and you take it up to the altar of burnt offering and the priest cuts its throat and then takes certain portions and puts them on the altar and they're burnt up as smoke, as a sweet savor to the Lord. But then the priest also has his portion of the meat, say the heave, shoulder, and I forget all the different parts that they're called, but there's a wave and a heave offering and other things that belong to the priest. And he would wrap them up in his garment and take them off someplace to cook them or whatever he was going to do. So the holy meat is part of the sacrifice, which is holy to the Lord, and is carried in what the Bible, what your translation, uh, if it's like mine, says, in the fold of his garment. Now, that's not what it says. It says in the wing of his garment, W-I-N-G, wing, as in the wing of a bird. And that's the significant term here, the one we'll have to investigate. 
If a man carries holy meat in the wing of his garment and touches bread with this wing or folded up cloth or cooked food, wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Now, holding your finger here, look back at Leviticus 6.27. Leviticus 6.27. We'll start in verse 26. The priest who offers it for sin, that is a sin offering, shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. So here's part of the sacrifice that's going to be eaten by the priest. Anyone who touches its flesh shall become consecrated or holy. And when any of its blood splashes or is sprinkled on a garment, in a holy place you shall wash what was splashed on. So now you get the picture here that you have a piece of sacrificed animal which is holy to the Lord. Anything it comes in contact with becomes consecrated and holy to the Lord. Now the question is, that's a first degree contact. Now how about a second degree contact? Let's get the picture involved. I take the wing of my garment, which is the corner. The wing is the corner. And I wrap up a leg of lamb in here from the sacrifice. Okay? So imagine that it's wrapped up in here. Now it comes in contact with this glass. My garment has become holy because of contact with the sacrifice meat. Now the question is, will that holiness flow out from the garment and also make this glass holy? And the answer is, no. Holiness spreads or it passes only one degree. It passes from the flesh to the garment. All right? Now, Jesus Christ is the sacrificial flesh, and he had a seamless garment. And so it passed from his flesh to his garment, and Jesus' seamless garment would have been holy. But now, according to their understanding under the Old Covenant, if anything had come in contact further with the garment wrapped around the holy meat, there would not have been any spread of holiness beyond that point. It's only to the first degree. Now, we'll take this up in the New Testament at the end of the lesson. But for now, under the Old Covenant, holiness does not spread from one thing to another. It spreads only out to the first degree, not to a second or third degree. Then in verse 13, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these things, will it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, It will become unclean. Now, uncleanness from a corpse. The first degree is you've got unholy meat. Instead of holy meat, sacrificial meat, you've got unclean meat, which is a corpse, a dead body. And that contamination spreads to a person who touches it. Now, that's the first degree of contamination or spreading. Now, the question is, does that spread on to a third degree? And the answer is, yes, it does. Uncleanness or defilement spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Now, that's in Numbers 19. And I'll just read it. Numbers 19 and verse 22. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Numbers 19:22. And so, in the Old Testament, uncleanness spread from person to person. I happened to be involved in a burial service, and I touched the corpse of the man who is dead. Well, I am unclean for a week. I have to be sprinkled and cleansed on the third day and again on the seventh day. We've studied this before here. 
Then I go home and I kiss my wife. She's unclean until evening. She goes in and dipes the baby. The baby is unclean until evening. The baby grabs hold of his little brother. The brother is unclean until evening. It spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Uncleanness spreads. Holiness does not spread. It only goes out to the first degree. If I touch a sacrificial meat, I become holy for a period of time. But nothing I touch becomes holy. Now, in the New Testament, it's different. In the New Testament, holiness spreads throughout the entire earth, but not in the Old Testament. Remember, we saw that the picture of that, one picture, a different picture, is that in the temple there was this labor of cleansing which was static in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that labor is turned on its side and the water flows out and begins to cover the earth and cleanse everything in its path. That's one picture of the difference between the Old and New Testament. Here's another, this business about the food and the wing of the garment and will it pass cleanness from one person to another. Now, what it actually says in verse 12 is, if a man carries the holy meat in the wing of his garment, and that's where we have to settle down for a while and investigate what the wing of the garment is. I've told you already it's a corner. But what does the Bible have to say about the corners or wings of things? So now it's time to make a tour of the Bible. And we'll start in Numbers chapter 15. So you can turn back to Numbers 15. We'll see something about the wing. Hebrew, kanaf, K-A-N-A-F. In English, wing, the wings of the garments. In Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners, or wings, of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel of each corner, or wing, a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Notice the reiteration of the claim of God to be the Lord. That always indicates a very important passage. Each person in Israel, from the priest down to the pauper, was to wear a garment which came over his shoulders and went down to his feet. And... On the front sides of that were two corners, and on the back side of that strip, whatever kind of robe it was, there would also be two corners. And on each corner was to be a tassel of blue attached, so that as they walked along, you would have four corners, two in the front and two in the back. Those are the corners of the garment. And they were to be colored blue, and they were to be a sign or a memorial of the fact that the Lord was their Redeemer and that they were to walk before Him. Now, just to jump light years ahead, the equivalent of that is the Lord's Supper, which is our memorial. You've got all these memorials in the Old Testament. Do this as a memorial. Set this up as a memorial. In the New Covenant, we have one and only one memorial. So everything that's a memorial in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the memorial of the Lord's Supper. Now, there are a lot of stages in between there, which maybe we'll get into. But the four corners or wings of the garment were these four tassels. That, by the way, is where blue laws come from. The covenanters in Scotland knew this passage, and they decided to make a blue banner to be the symbol of the Scottish covenanters. And they picked blue because it was the color of holiness. 
and is a reminder of the covenant. And so Presbyterians were known as people who were true blue. And Presbyterian laws were known as blue laws. That comes from this passage, the corner of blue. Now you can look over in Deuteronomy 22, verse 12. And again, Deuteronomy 22:12. You shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners or wings of your garment with which you cover yourself. Now, so much for corners on the garment. In order to understand the corners on the garment, we're going to have to look at some of the other wings in the Bible. So let's look forward to Job, Job chapter 37. See, just what else the Bible says about these wings. By the way, this word wing is just the word that's used for bird's wings or angel wings. See, it's a normal word for wing. But it takes on a special meaning when you've got four wings at the four corners of something. So we're looking at this idea of wings in connection with corners. Job 37, verse 3. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose, and his lightning to the ends of the earth. The word ends there is wings or corners. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose, that is his thunder, and his lightning to the corners or wings of the earth. So the earth has corners. The earth is flat and has corners, according to the Bible. That's true symbolically. It's not true literally. There are other passages which don't indicate that the earth is flat. But in terms of biblical symbolism, the earth is flat and has four corners, and God's thunder and lightning go out to the four corners or wings of the earth. Then in chapter 38 of Job, verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends or corners of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. So you've got the idea of God taking hold of the corners or wings of the earth and shaking the earth like a sheet and the wicked being shaken out of it. And one other passage along these lines, Isaiah 11, verse 12. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners or wings of the earth. Now, you see, the human body, when it's robed in this robe, has got four corners. The earth also has four corners. And what's interesting is that both of them are not called corners, they're called wings. So then the question is, how come the corners of the earth are called the wings of the earth? How come the four corners of the human outfit are called wings? Well, let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 1. And here we have a description of the cherubim. And while the cherubim are variously described in Scripture, this is the description which is apropos to our discussion. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 6 says, start in verse 4, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud, that's the glory cloud, with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around the cloud, and in the midst of the fire something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it that is the cloud, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. They looked like human beings. And each had four faces and four wings, or corners. Notice that. Their legs were straight, their feet were like calves' hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for their faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, etc. Now these cherubim have got four wings and they're like people. Now people have four wings too. 
because they've got those four tassels. And the cherubim have four wings. And under each of the wings is a hand. So get a connection in your mind between the wing and the hand. Now I'm going to just summarize what all this means. When you put it all together, you have to come up with some type of explanation as to why this language is used this way. And the idea of the wing involves three things in the Bible. First of all, the wing is one of the four cornerstone foundations of a house. You go to build a house, it has four corners. The earth has four corners, and the earth is like a house. The human body also has four corners, and the human body is like a house. You know from Ecclesiastes 12 that the human body is like a house. You know that the human body is like a temple or like a tabernacle. It's like a house. It has four corners. And the four corners are set out very explicitly in the terms of these four tassels that are there. So if you can look at a man dressed in a robe as a building supported on four foundation pillars, like these tassels that are hanging down, like four foundation stones. Then you can look at the entire world as a house. And the book of Job speaks of it that way. It says it has pillars and columns and all kinds of stuff. But it also has four corners. And at these four cornerstones are the four corners of the world house. And so what are these wings? Well, they're the cornerstone foundations of a house. If you tear off one of these wings, you're tearing up the house because the house can't stand except on its foundation. So what would happen if you had a house and it was built on these four cornerstones and you ripped one of the cornerstones off? Well, the house would start to fall apart. And so when Saul grabbed hold of Samuel and tore the wing of his garment off, as we read in 1 Samuel, and it's the wing or the corner that he tore off. And Samuel represents Israel. Samuel turns around to Saul and says, the kingdom is torn from you. Your house is going to crumble because it has no foundation. That's why in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 30, it says, a man shall not go in to sleep with his father's wife to uncover the corner or wing of his garment. That not only speaks of exposing him to nakedness, but it also means to tear down his house. To tear off the corners of the garment is to tear up the house because a house is built on four cornerstones. Now, according to Numbers 15, which we read first, these four corners stand for righteousness. And so the house is built and established on righteousness. The four corners, the four blue tassels were there to remind them to live holy and righteous before the law. And so the house is established on righteousness. What are the four pillars that hold up the house? The four tassels that dangle down to the ground and seem to hold up this house? They are righteousness. If you don't have righteousness, then your house falls. So that's the first thing that the wing stands for. It stands for the corner of the house being held up by righteousness. That's the way they would think about it. The second thing the wing stands for, the wing of the garment, is protection. Establishment on righteousness, and then second, protection. We've been over this in the studies of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12, and Ruth 3 verse 9. That's where Ruth puts herself under the wings of the Lord for protection. And then in chapter 3 verse 9, she asks Boaz to spread the wing of his garment, that corner tassel over her, to protect her. So the wing stands for protection. There are many passages where the Lord is said to shelter his people under his wings. But here are the four corners of the garment. The symbolism was when Boaz would spread his corner of the garment over Ruth, he was putting her under his protection, under his wings. 
So the wing stands for two things. One, the cornerstone of the house founded on righteousness. Second, protection. And third, the wing represents the hand. We saw that in Ezekiel. There's a hand under each of the wings. And so, if you know anything about birds, you know birds don't have hands. They have wings instead. And so there's a parallel between a wing and a hand. And that is important to us here in Haggai because that's the explanation that's made of the wing. Now, let's look back at Haggai chapter 2. The wing stands, third of all, I didn't say everything I needed to say there, for the hand, and the hand speaks of help. You need help, then you need a hand. Not a handout, just a hand. Okay? And the hand speaks of help in the Bible. The hand reaches down to offer help. The wing stands for protection. It stands for help. It also stands for a cornerstone of the house built on righteousness. Now, with that background in mind, notice the argument in Haggai chapter 2, verse 12. If a man carries holy meat in the wing of his garment and touches bread with his wing, will all this stuff become holy? And the priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches one of these, will it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it will become unclean. Verse 14, then is an application. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people. In other words, they are unclean. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. Now, the reason that the hands are referred to is that that's parallel to the wings. What the hands bring to the Lord, what the wings of the human body bring to the Lord, is unclean because the wings are defiled. Now, what are the wings supposed to represent? They're supposed to represent righteousness so that the work of the hand or wing is established on righteousness. But because their wings are defiled, the meat that they offer is also defiled. And so it's not acceptable. The work of their hands or wings is not acceptable because their hands or wings are defiled. If their hands or wings were clean and based on the blue cord of righteousness, it would not be defiled. Their works would be acceptable. So this is the formula. If they are clean, their bodies are clean, then their wings are clean. If their wings are clean, then the works of their hand are clean, and they are established on the four cornerstones of righteousness. See, their question is, how come our nation is not established? How come... The Lord keeps cursing the crops. And the answer is, their houses are not established on the four corners of righteousness because their wings are unclean. Since they're unclean, their wings or hands are also unclean. Their sacrifices are defiled and their culture is not firmly established. This is a long way of saying something that we all know to be true. That is, that righteousness exalts a nation and that wickedness destroys a nation. Yet it's all set out here in elaborate symbolic structure. Now, what is the corpse? It says here, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches one of these, will the latter become unclean? So the idea is that there is a corpse somewhere in the nation, and the people have been in touch with this corpse, and so the people have become unclean. As a result, their garments are unclean and their wings are unclean. And you can't build a house on wickedness. And so their corners are not established and their house is not established because they've been in touch with a corpse and they become unclean. Now the question is, what is the corpse that they've been in touch with? 
And the only answer that seems to make much sense among the few commentators who even ask the question of what this means is that the corpse probably is the temple. The temple is sitting there in ruins. The temple is considered to be a living being because the temple is where God dwells and Jesus Christ himself is what the temple represents and he's a living person. And the temple is a corpse and because it's not built, it's defiled. It's in a state of defilement because it had been raided and burned down by the enemies of God. And so the temple is considered to be a defiled corpse and all those who come in contact with it are becoming defiled. And that defilement is spreading through the land and thus they cannot be established on the four corners of righteousness. So what do they need to do? They need to remove the defilement in the house of God and make it clean. And then that cleanness will spread at least to the first degree. It will spread to the people who come to the temple. It won't spread out beyond it. In the Old Covenant, it doesn't spread out all over the earth, but it does spread to the first degree. The holiness or cleanness of the temple will spread to those who personally come to it and come in contact with it. It's only in the New Testament that it begins to spread out beyond Jerusalem. So, we're back to the same point that we've made every week. If you want to reform your culture, you have to start by reforming the church. You cannot reform culture and then reform the church. That's what they've been trying to do. You'll remember from chapter 1 of Haggai that they were trying to build nice houses in which to live, and yet their houses were rotting out, probably from termites or some other Texan disease. And then, this place is bad for termites. I mean, I've been other places, but Tyler's bad for termites. Then they were trying to have lots of crops and lay up dried food and all the other good stuff for the future, and yet maggots and other things kept getting in and destroying their food, if maggots destroy food. Whatever destroys food, weevils. Nothing that they were doing in their culture was being established. And the reason is that they did not build the house of God first, which is a house of prayer, and speaks of public, corporate, formal worship. That has to be made clean, and then the culture will be blessed. The holy meat and the holy culture, at least first degree, spread. The garment of culture around the person of Christ is made clean or holy if the temple is built first. That's the message here. And it's an elaborate way of saying your culture is defiled because your worship is defiled. Clean up your worship and your culture will be established. Be established on the four wings or four corners of righteousness. I know I'm being repetitious, but to teach symbolism, you have to be repetitious. But now I'll assume that you have at least the gist of this and move on to verse 15. And we'll conclude the passage. But now do consider from this point. It's actually what that says. You translate it best. Consider from this point. And then the point there is neutral. You can consider it from this point backward or you can consider it from this point forward. But here in verse 15, the idea is consider from this point backward. Consider the way it's been. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures and there would be only 10, when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures and there would only be 20, I wasn't blessing you. And I wasn't blessing you because you didn't make the house of God your first concern. You were unclean. I smote you and every work of your hands. There are the hands again, the wings. Everything you tried to do, every act of your house, I smote with blasting wind and mildew and hail. And yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. 
But now, by way of contrast, the transition is not there, but in verse 18, do consider from this point, and here it's considered from this point forward, do consider from this point onward or forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord began to be rebuilt, when you begin to remove the defilement. Consider, is the seed still in the barn? Well, yes, it is, because it's the middle of the winter time. Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not yet borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So the assurance is there that even though they don't see it, it hasn't started yet, yet it will come. Now again, this is somewhat typological because the Old Testament happens in the wintertime. And it's actually pointing forward to the New Covenant when all these blessings begin to come in. Christ was raised in the springtime of the year. It says in Matthew 24, when you see all these things, you know that it's spring and that summer is near. And so this starts in the middle of the winter, but it tells them to look forward to the time that now that they've started being faithful and putting the temple first, it takes time, but your culture will be established. Now that is also a message to us. If we want to see reformation and reconstruction in the United States, we have to reform the church. Reforming the church doesn't mean kicking everybody out of the church except those that are as pure as we are. It does mean working to reestablish cleanness, righteousness, and holiness in worship, shaping up worship. Then it takes time from the 24th day of the ninth month. You don't see immediate results. But we have the assurance that in time, the righteousness and blessings of culture will flow out from that if we will put worship central. Now, just to trace out this idea of the wings of the four corners of the garments, I'd like to show you how the Bible continues this into the New Testament. That's the message of Haggai. It's the same message that he's had right along. Build a house of prayer and your culture will be established. Your culture is not established because you have not built the house of prayer. Simple message. Elaborately presented. But let's trace out the four corners here a little bit. Turn your Bible forward a couple of pages to Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8, and last verse, verse 23. This is a picture of the latter days. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the wing. It may say garment, or it may say corner, but it is the corner. The wing will grasp the wing of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Ten men from every nation will grab the wing of of the garment of a Jew. Now, the wing stands for what? It's a memorial of righteousness and holiness, of help and of protection. Who is this Jew that they're going to grab hold of? They're going to grab hold of the wing of Jesus Christ, obviously. He is the one who has righteousness and can offer protection and help. Now, it's also true in another sense of any Christian. And it's a picture of the latter days in which the gospel will go out and the nations will grab hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grabbing the wing or corner of his garment. And thus they and their culture will be established on that firm foundation of the four corners. Look over at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. The Son of Righteousness, reference to Christ, arises with healing in the wings. Again, laying hold of the wings is to lay hold of life and power. 
Now, where does this come into the New Testament? Well, it comes in a very famous story, and we will look at the recital of the story in Luke chapter 8. So turn to Luke 8, and we'll conclude the lesson there. This is a passage where somebody grabbed hold of the wing of Jesus' garment and was healed, because there's healing in the wing, and also found righteousness and protection. Luke 8. This story occurs also in Matthew and Mark, but there are different versions of it to make different points. And the version we want is the one here in Luke. Luke 8 and verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old. Notice that the number is given. It doesn't say several years old. It says 12 years old. She was dying. But as he went along, the multitudes were pressing against him, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the corner or wing of his cloak. No matter what your English Bible says, the word there is corner or wing. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now that's not supposed to happen, folks, because the holy meat is wrapped around inside the wing. And the wing comes in contact with this unclean woman. And it's not supposed to spread, is it? That's what happened in the Old Testament. It said, will it spread? No, it will not spread. Now what happens here, and this is characteristic of the New Covenant, the cleanness spreads right through from the holy meat Jesus Christ to the wing of his garment and on to this unclean woman. The woman had a hemorrhage and could not be healed, and she came up behind him and touched the corner of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now, what does the hemorrhaging do? It makes you unclean. Any passage of blood or of any other substance from the private parts in the Bible is a sign of uncleanness, because what we call the private parts are the locus of life, and anything that flows out from them, except in proper times and places, is life flowing away, and thus is a sign of death. And so this woman has a hemorrhage for 12 years. She's been dead for 12 years. Symbolically speaking, she's been dead for 12 years. And every time she touches anybody, they become unclean. And if they go home and touch somebody, they become unclean. And so she has basically been cut off and exiled from humanity, cut off and in hell for 12 years. So she's unclean. But such is the power of the righteousness of Christ, which is what she lays hold of, the wing, that her hemorrhage stops. In verse 45, Jesus said, Who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon you. You really want to know who touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus says, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now, that's the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. There was righteousness there, and it was established there for those in the immediate area, but there was no power going out. Now, the reference to power going out from Christ is a reference to the Holy Spirit, especially in Luke. In Luke, you almost always have a reference to the Holy Spirit, and one of the ways the Spirit is referred to is the power. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, according to our confession, and the power proceeds out from him. What did this woman do? Well, she laid hold of three things. She laid hold of the wing, which stands for righteousness. She laid hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and she experienced resurrection from the dead. She laid hold of the wing, which stands for protection. She placed herself under the protection of Jesus Christ. 
She laid hold of the wing, which represents a hand, and help, and she received help from Jesus Christ. And that was mediated to her by the Spirit who proceeds from Christ. Just as the water flows out of the temple, representing the Holy Spirit, here the power flows through the wing, representing the Holy Spirit. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed or cleansed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, where is the wing today, the sign of righteousness that we can look at and lay hold of? Well, it was the memorial, and our memorial is the Lord's Supper. So when we approach the Lord's Supper in faith, we experience resurrection from the dead. Our cleanness is turned to righteousness. Well, let's continue the story. While he was still speaking, notice how the stories are intermeshed. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, and said, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So we've had a symbolic death. Now we have literal death. Twelve years of symbolic death, and now a twelve-year-old child, only daughter, the end of the line, literally dead. But when Jesus heard this, he answered and said, Do not be afraid, only believe. Again, faith is required, and she shall be made well. Healing. It's all the same language. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the girl's father and mother. And they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, Stop weeping, for she's not dead, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. That again is a reference to the Holy Spirit, not that she doesn't have a spirit of her own, but whenever the Bible refers to the human spirit, it does so by way of referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit again who is the active agent. Christ takes her by the hand. The hand represents the wing. You see all these parallels. The wing is grabbed by the woman who is symbolically dead. The hand is grabbed by the girl who is literally dead. The spirit again flows from Christ to her and her spirit returns. And she rose up immediately, and he gave orders for her to be given something to eat. That's questionable why that's there. My tendency, again, is to think that there's the idea of some type of a meal after resurrection, pointing to what we have in the Lord's Supper, communion meal for those who have been resurrected by baptism. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Well, until we get to the book of Revelation, where there's a lot about the corners and the establishment of the house on corners, there is where the Bible tells us that the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, life spreads from the wings and establishes us in righteousness if we lay hold of Christ. Now, we'll take some questions. I've always wondered about why everybody started laughing. That's a kind of strange reaction when somebody's just died. Could those have largely been paid mourners that wouldn't have had an emotional investment in the girl? Well, it just depends on what kind of laughter is really implied there. It could have been laughter of scorn or something rather than laughter of humor. Obviously, they regarded him as a madman. I don't honestly have any insight beyond that. But it doesn't necessarily mean they laughed at him in humor, but they may have been laughing at him in scorn. The attempt to ridicule him to get him to leave. Leave off abusing the family as they would perceive it. You know, this is doomed to failure, so why abuse this poor family? Well, Jairus didn't see it that way. No, Jairus had faith. That's why he didn't make him go away. What about the phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and your neighbor as yourself on these two laws, hang all the on these yes, hang all the law prophets. Do you see any connection there to the four corners hanging on the garment? 
Not right off. In the Bible, you have a number of different symbolic structures, and we've been exploring one of them. That would be somewhat different. I would tie that more to the idea that you have to have two witnesses. And the, the use of two and in tying everything to these two preeminent witnesses would be the way I'd probably go in that one. Jean? Why at the end is Jesus telling not to tell anybody? Want to answer that, Craig? Go ahead. I think Craig could probably answer that better than I can. Well, I think you brought it out in the first part, but in the Old Covenant, when someone was touched or touched something that was dead, he himself became unclean and was in need of purification. But when you come to Jesus Christ, who was living amongst the midst of culture, which required that purification, yet he would touch something that was dead, and yet the dead thing would become alive. And he was in need of no purification because he was pure. Right. And had the message gone out that he had touched something that was defiled, then probably Pharisees would have required some sort of purification on his part. Yeah, which would have been inappropriate in his case. See, ordinarily he'd be unclean for a whole week after touching a corpse. Gary? The more I think about what was going on, the more I see two things. You haven't mentioned the defense against the death. In the Old Testament, you have the defilement spreading rapidly, one to another. And therefore, there was a defensive attitude, of really, of the Hebrews in not having contact with external culture, which kept the message, with the exception of Jonah, from spreading. And Jonah tried not to get in contact with that culture. So the mentality is overwhelmingly defensive to stay out of contact with foreign gods, foreign cultures, and foreign peoples. That you're a world unto yourself because of the fear of defilement. Now, in the New Testament, you then get the power flowing the other way. And Christ said, well, the power has flowed out of it. At the same time, the defensive aspect disappears at that moment. Because Christ's garment is touched by a woman who is unclean. Therefore, by the same analogy, Christ would have become unclean. And yet he immediately goes to the girl and she is resurrected, which means that the defilement was no longer active. It no longer passes from one to the other where you're linked to Christ and the power of Christ. So that at this point, not only do you have the offensive power of the gospel spreading out, but no longer are you threatened by coming into contact with the defiled aspect because now the defilement stops at the point of the gospel and righteousness. And the defilement no longer is a threat to you. And in fact, you are a threat to the defilement because now the positive aspects of the gospel go out. Now I think the next step you would take then would be Peter when he is in Acts 10 told to come in contact with the defiled food which is showing him that no longer need he be afraid of coming in contact with this Gentile centurion and the, and the Roman world as a whole. Because now in no way is he defiled by the contact with that which is dead, so he has no fear of becoming defiled. And at the same time, now he's told he has all this power to go out and spread like leaven through the external world. Now if you look at, for example, 20th century fundamentalism, We've gone back to the Old Testament concept of defilement to a great extent. They don't want to go to any movie because some movies are bad. They don't want to have any beer because some people are drunk. Uh, they don't want to have any contact with the culture because some aspects of the culture can spread to evil people and make them totally corrupt, and they're afraid it's going to spread to them and make them totally corrupt. So we're back to this defensive Israeli-type world and life view with respect to culture and cultural events. Mm -hmm. 
Good point. Well, the clean, unclean distinction for the defilement, would it have stopped there and Jesus touched the woman, or would it have stopped at the crucifixion? No, it stops at the crucifixion. It's sacrificial meat that's involved, and this is still pre-sacrifice. But it's typologically set out here, because in essence, where Christ is, that's where life is. It's pre-sacrifice, but it's post-consecration. It's after his baptism. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting in that passage is that the people are not set to press in upon him once they know he's been touched by that unclean woman. And yet he goes to a dead person, and the dead person, being dead, then receives the life, precisely because they're not worried about the ritual defilement of Jesus, but the life yeah. comes to the dead person. But the Jews didn't want to touch him. Is the laying on of hands symbolic of this? Yeah, in a sense, there's a reception of gift involved in the laying on of hands. Lou has been doing all the studies here. You want to comment on that? Laying on of hands is like a transfer identification, either of uh, sin or of guilt. You lay hands on the sacrifice, but also in the ordination. The gift that is in you by the laying on of hands of presbytery. Not a magical view, but on the other hand, some type of a symbolic view there. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.